direct your attention to the Word of God back for the third Sunday in a row to the same passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 3 and uh, hear now the Word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Eulogy means literally a good word. When we go often to a memorial service, we'll have one or more people that will stand and give a eulogy. They will say something good and pleasant remarkable and memorable about the person. When we ascribe the same idea of saying a good word to the Lord, we generally use the word doxology, which means a word of praise. There are many doxology passages found in the New Testament as well as the Old. The Psalms are filled with doxology, but so are the letters of Paul and Peter. Praising, saying a good word, honoring the Lord. Benediction means to speak well of someone. Well, that's what we have here. We have in this passage, which is virtually one sentence in fact, it carries over to the next couple of verses. This is really just one long sentence in the text that is eulogy, doxology, benediction, speaking well of, saying a good word, praising, glorifying God. And this is the first person of the triune God about whom we spoke last week, God the Father. The writer here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit begins what is obviously a letter by the beginning and the ending. We know it's a letter, but it's a doxology. It's almost a hymn of praise to the Lord. And it is to the Lord God, the Father of Jesus Christ. God the Father sent His Son 
out of a motive of love and mercy. And that's the first attribute that's praised according to his great mercy. If you're this morning struggling under the weight of guilt for your sin and your failures and your shortcomings, if you have a sense in your heart that you have failed the Lord, that you have sinned and you have grieved the Spirit of God, you need to know first and foremost that the Father, the Heavenly Father, is merciful. He is a God of mercy. In fact, the word that's used here is the little Greek word poly. It means many. It means a whole lot of. It means much. Polycarp is much fruit. Well, this is much mercy. The helios of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord. God is great in mercy. Paul uses the, the phrase, God is rich in mercy with his great love wherewith he loved us. I remember a phrase my dad used often in preaching when I was a child as I listened to him preach. He would use the word manifold, manifold mercy. And I think that says it, manifold mercy. Manifold means that there's different categories. A manifold in an automobile engine is different compartments. And a manifold mercy means that God's mercy in many capacities He's merciful over all the earth. It is the goodness of the Lord we see in every way that a hurricane when it comes only does this much damage and not this much damage. It is the mercies of God that are over all the earth that preserve and protect all peoples and keep the worst from happening in every case because the downward and debilitating trends of sin and degradation are always to make things worse and it's the restraining mercy of the Lord, the hedge and the wall of protection that keeps things from being much worse than they are. Can you imagine? Wars and conflicts are restrained by God's mercy and compassion when He says at some point, that's enough. Stay. Be still. Stop the carnage. Stop the killing. Stop the destruction. Because if it was left up to Satan and the destroyer of this earth, he would have it all go to the absolute nth degree of devastation. But God is not only merciful over all the earth, he is merciful over his people in a special way. He has shown his mercy to us in salvation, as we'll speak about here as we talk of the living hope. He has granted to us mercy in just the very fact that He has brought us into a place by His Spirit that we were able to hear the gospel, to understand and to, to appreciate and have a quickened mind and heart that was able to see the horror of our sin and the beauty of Christ and repent of our sins and trust in Christ mercy. 
And it's the mercy of God that lives and dwells over all of our daily lives. You can just think of things in your life that could have happened. Some things you probably thought would happen. But God in His mercy spared, forbeared, protected you and kept you from it. The manifold, the different facets of the mercy of God on our lives is due a good word, a benediction, a eulogy. Some kind of praise and some kind of glory belongs to the Lord every day of our lives because of His manifold, plenteous, rich mercy. I like the words to the old hymn that says there is a wideness, a wideness in God's mercy. So the writer here praises the Lord. He says, according to his mercy, he has acted. By the way, this long sentence that we speak of, that these verses are all part of one long sentence, the verbs are in the indicative. In other words, it's just telling us and indicating how things are. He will shift down the passage in a few verses to the imperative, things that we must do. But right now the Lord does not call upon us to do anything. He calls upon us to recognize what He has done and to set forth the things that He has done for us. And the first thing He has done is the Father has become the progenitor of eternal life. He's the giver of eternal life. And He did it first by bestowing upon Christ that blessing of eternal life that was promised in the Old Testament covenant. The eternal life would be a quality of life and it would be a duration of life and it would be a life of splendor and a life of blessing and a life of prosperity and it would be a life that would never end and that was bestowed upon Christ in the resurrection. That's what the resurrection of Christ is. It was a bestowal of the blessing that comes from perfect obedience to the law. If you keep the law perfectly in every way, by the way, that covenant's still good for you. Do you know that? If you keep the law perfectly in every way and never fail it, not one iota in any part of your life, you'll get that blessing. How are you doing? <laughs> Where are you on that track? Have you failed any at all? Have you fallen short? Have you broken just part of one commandment ever in your life? If you have, you're failed. If you failed one, you failed all. And you need mercy. You need someone else's perfection to be imputed to your account, to be reckoned to be yours. You don't have any perfection. You are someone who has failed. Some of us have failed greatly. Some have failed not so visibly. Some sins are ever before them and obvious to the world. Some of us sort of hide our sins and conceal them and rationalize them and sort of put a callus around them and, and keep them from people and maintain a facade of righteousness. Jesus told us that we're like a sepulcher. We look good on the outside, but inside it's rotten and putrid as dead bones. 
You need a savior. You need someone else's righteousness, someone else's perfection, someone else's obedience, someone else's beauty placed upon you and accounted to you and reckoned to you. And that's what we receive in our salvation. That's what God gives us. And He gives it to us because Christ received it. He earned it, by the way. Did you know salvation was by works? Uh Uh-huh. Jesus worked and He earned the blessing, the resurrection by His sacrificial death and by His obedient life. But then God raised Him up. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those great realities that we affirm in the Christian faith. Last week we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. And somebody emailed me a long, long email advertising a book that disproves the doctrine of the Trinity this week. (laughs) It was interesting reading. It wasn't anything in there that anybody honest about it wouldn't say. For example, the word Trinity never occurs in the Bible. And all these arguments against the notion of God being one God, yet three distinct persons, all equal and all fully God. Well, that's a tough mystery. And so is the resurrection in this sense, because we stand on this side of history from the resurrection. In the passage, Peter says that though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't know him, and you've not seen Him now, yet you believe in Him. And that's where we are. We're, we're sitting right there in that place. Peter wasn't in that place. Jesus, Peter saw the Lord. Peter saw the trial of the Lord. He saw the crucifixion of the Lord. He witnessed the risen Lord. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the Lord ascend into heaven. He had every benefit of empirical evidence. I witness. And he believed. But he realizes he's writing to those of us who are of the dispersion. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the diaspora, those of us that are just scattered like seeds all over the earth. He's writing to people he knew had never seen Jesus in the flesh, did not witness the risen Lord as he and the other apostles and the early Christians did there in those days of Christ life on earth. But yet, we believe in Him. That's faith. That is that engendered quality that God places in our hearts. It is a God-given capacity to see the unseeable and to know that which is inscrutable and to understand it and to believe it and to foundationally rest upon it. It's what faith is. One of the many facets of faith is knowing, one is trusting, one is obeying, but one facet of faith is fidelity and it's loyalty. Loyalty. Though we've never seen the risen Lord with the eyes of the flesh, we love Him. We believe in Him. And we're loyal to Him. In fact, that's really the thing that Peter's going to speak about throughout the entire 
book, this letter, is all about steadfastness, loyalty, perseverance, remaining, staying strong in the faith. And we do that because God has given us this living hope. It's a, it's a living hope in that the hope itself is alive, but it enlivens us. And the living hope is to an inheritance that is, and there's three, th four things it says about it. It's imperishable, means it will not pass away. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. May I take a moment and teach a little bit of a doctrine that is not really understood by so many Christians, and that is of what is the inheritance? What is the inheritance? Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1. Peter talks about it here. The inheritance is that which God promised His people in the days of Abraham, and then again in the days of Moses and David, what God promised would be the blessing that He would give them. And He spelled it out in terms. And one of the literal terms was that God would give His people an inheritance. They would inherit a land. God had a piece of property. There was a real estate. There was a country. Not a mythical place. Not a utopia but an actual, literal piece of real estate on God's green earth that they would inherit as their very own. And you know the story of the Old Testament, the wandering of the patriarchs, the bondage and the captivity that they had for several hundred years in Egypt, and then the coming out, the wilderness wandering. And then finally, under Joshua, whose name is the Old Testament word for Jesus, their Savior, He led them into the land. In other words, they received their inheritance. And He gave them allotments. You remember how in the book of Joshua they divided the land and you could see what portion Ephraim got and what portion Judah got and which portion that Dan received and, and Asher and all the rest. Literal inheritance, land, piece of property. God promised it and He literally fulfilled it. He gave it to them. He gave it to them, but He told them they had to possess it. They had to fight for it. They had to earn it. They had to occupy it. They had to protect it. They had to, to use it. He gave it to them, but they did not possess it the way they should have. And because of that, that literal inheritance that they got, and God kept His side of the bargain. He gave it to them. He brought them into the land of milk and honey. But what happened to the land? Well, some things happened to it, and I think Peter alludes to them right here. The land became defiled. It became defiled with idolatry and paganism 
and child sacrifice and ritual prostitution and all kinds of ungodliness that was sort of epitomized in the wickedest woman that you'll see anywhere in the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel. The land was defiled. The land was subject to perishing. In fact, there came a day when first the Assyrians took the northern part and then eventually the Babylonians took the southern part and the whole bit of the land was completely wiped out and taken over by foreign powers. And God's people were slaughtered, deported, and then they were forced to be intermarried with others. And the land was re uh, inhabited by those from other nations, principally from the northern nations. They perished in the earth. The land perished. Unfading. What is something to fade? If I have on a bright red shirt and I wash it in good old tide for a number of times, it'll start looking a little faded. You can still tell it's red, but it's faded. It just doesn't have its glory. It doesn't have its splendor. If I wash it too many times, it looks kind of pink and then orange, and pretty soon you can't hardly tell what color it is because it just faded. That's kind of the way the land became over time. The Greeks conquered. The Romans conquered. Every time you turned around, they would, the land lost its splendor. It lost its uniqueness. It was no longer God's people living there alone. It was all kinds of things. The temple was destroyed eventually and then destroyed again after it had been rebuilt. Over and over and over, there was a fading out of that inheritance. And then finally, it says that the inheritance is kept in heaven. The holy land was a land on earth, on the fallen earth. The real inheritance that God promised His people was everlasting life. He told him, said, you'll live in the land forever. The real land is that land of imperishable, eternal life, kept and reserved in heaven for God's people. To the people scattered out all over the earth, the promise was not that they would be brought to a holy land, but they would be gathered together from all over the earth into a holy communion. And it would be a communion of God's people, a communion of saints, a real synagogue, a real gathering together of God's people, a real ecclesia, a real church, a real group of those that were elect of all the nations and called out to be God's people. And that they would all share eternal life which comes from Jesus Christ in His resurrection. They would be in Christ and Christ would be in them and they would have this incredible status of a new people. They would be born again. And this would be their hope. The hope would not be in anything other than Christ and Christ alone. The promise of the inheritance is a promise of Christ. 
I will be your God. I will be in your midst. Before God ever gave the covenant promises to Abraham, He said to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. The benefits, the promise, the inheritance, that which we get is we get the Lord Himself. Doesn't that make you want to praise the Lord? Doesn't that make you want to give a eulogy? Sing a doxology? Pronounce a benediction? For the great things that God has done. He says, it's kept in heaven who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word guarded here is a word that refers to the garrisons or the fortresses of the Roman Empire that was spread throughout the ancient world. Quite often when countries would be taken over by a superior country or a conquering country, they would simply take over the forts and the garrisons that were already there. In other words, the ancient Ninevites had built fortresses in Assyria. The Greeks took those over and eventually the Romans took those over. And they were a string of them all across the nations that we mentioned, Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, the countries where this letter is being sent, the countries that are mentioned there in verse, verse one of this epistle. And in bearing in mind these great fortresses, they guarded the people. This is the same term that Peter uses that our inheritance, our eternal life in Christ is being guarded and protected. And then finally we'll say, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the apocalypse. In popular parlance, when we think of apocalypse, we think of things blowing up and exploding and all kinds of mayhem taking place. And we see it on the TV a lot. They'll always say apocalypse is this massive destruction and, and this great uh, cataclysmic event at the end of the age. And that's only partially right. Actually, the apocalypse means an unveiling to pull back a curtain so you can see what it's really all about. And that's what the apocalypse is. It's the unveiling, the pulling back of the curtain to see what God's program and God's purposes have been about all along. And the Bible teaches us that there'll come a day when Christ will appear in this way. Paul uses the term appearance quite a bit to speak of this event. A parousia, a coming, an arrival. And that's the reality that will be revealed at the last time. The word revealed means your eye can see it. Apocalypse means it'll be visible to the eye. The apostle says, every eye shall behold him. But that's not where we are today. Right now we walk by faith, not by sight. If we have a hope, if we have an expectation if we have a promise that we can bank on, if we have a Lord that we can be loyal to, it's going to need to be done by faith, belief. We're going to have to trust God, take Him at His word, 
Hear His voice. Walk with Him. Follow Him. And whenever you get a chance, give God a eulogy. Some doxology, some praise, and a benediction. Say something good about Him.